Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 1st of December. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian, and I can't wait to hear what's up in the sky for the month of December. No worries, Brendan. December's going to be very interesting. This year we don't have a Christmas comet like we did last year, but we've got lots of exciting things that will keep us on our toes. For the month of December, we will have all five of the bright planets gracing our evening skies although you'll probably have to be looking at just around about nautical twilight to see all five of them at the same time in roughly the middle of the month. So as always, I'm going to start with the, what's happening with the moon. So December the 1st is the first quarter moon. Then December the 8th is the full moon. This is an apogee mini moon. It's not a very good apogee mini moon. You get a better one in January. January the 8th, but still, it's if you've been taking photographs of the perigee uh, maxi moons, it'd be very good to take an image of this moon and contrast it with the maxi moons of earlier in the year. Last quarter is uh, on uh, December the 16th. December the 23rd is a new moon, which is a good time to hunt for clusters and nebula and a very good time to be looking for galaxies. And December the 30th is a blue first quarter moon. Now, we normally only think about blue moons in terms of full moons, because full moons are very exciting. And uh, as you know, a blue moon is, these days, any two full moons that occur in the same month. But of course, this can happen to all phases of the moon, although blue moons are not very exciting because you can't see them. And our blue last quarter moons aren't very exciting because you have to be up about three o'clock in the morning to see them. But uh, the, the first quarter moons, we're going to have two first quarter moons in the month of December, which is yeah, moderately exciting. Yep. 
Anyway, uh, as I said, the full moon is a apogee mini moon because apogee is when the moon is first from the Earth is on December 12th, which is a bit far away from uh, the, the full moon at December 11th. I think it'll be still close enough to, to get a feel for the size of the moon. And perigee is on December the 24th. Now, let's get to the exciting planetary action. Mercury and Venus both entered the evening sky last month, but they've been hanging on the horizon. Unfortunately, during the summer, the ecliptic is angled very low to the north, and so planetary apparitions during uh, summer, they don't get very high. Mercury, is, is, despite being relatively low, will have a good apparition uh, this month and doesn't get very high out of the twilight point low, but by mid-month, uh, Mercury should be very obvious in the twilight sky, getting towards the end of civil twilight into nautical twilight, and it's furthest from the, uh, from the sun on the 22nd, and so is a decent height above the horizon uh, around about the 22nd. And this is probably a very good time to, if you're looking just around nautical twilight, to see all five of the bright classical planets together. Cool. Now, Venus is, is quite bright. Although very early in the month, you'll probably need binoculars at a low level horizon like the ocean to be able to see them at their best. Venus and binoculars very easy and then see uh, Mercury just above it. And then by mid-month, uh, Mercury should be very easy to see in the twilight and uh, Venus very ob very obvious below. But then you still kind of need a lower horizon that's fairly uncluttered to see the two at their best. And uh, uh, then on the um, 24th, you've got a really nice uh, uh, apparition where you've got the thin crescent moon, Venus and Mercury forming a triangle. Again, you're best to see this uh, looking a bit after the uh, the end of civil twilight, uh, otherwise it starts getting very low. But nonetheless, it'll be very nice to look at. And then on the 28th to the 30th, Mercury and Venus are less than two degrees apart. That's less than two fingerprints apart uh, and will look quite nice. Uh, you may again need binoculars but to around the 20th to see Mercury, Mercury uh, properly, but that will look very nice in binoculars. Lovely. Because the Venus and Mercury are pretty close together, what I've just said for Mercury holds for Venus as well. Of course, our beloved uh, planet Earth is at solstice on the 22nd. This is where the days are longest. Uh, and of course, because we're in summer, uh, because the days are quite long, you have to wait uh, quite some time before the sky is dark enough to see the clusters uh, in our skies uh, uh, neatly. Okay. Well, that doesn't apply to the bright planets. And uh, the second brightest planet in the sky is Mars. Now, Mars is at opposition this month. And that means that's when it's biggest and brightest to see Earth. And if you've been uh, watching Mars recently, you'll be noticing it's getting brighter and brighter. Mars, this is a modest opposition this year. So it doesn't get quite as bright as the previous years. And it doesn't exceed the brightness of Jupiter. Jupiter is still the brightest. Uh, planet in the evening sky. Venus is even brighter because it's very low. It sets before Mars uh, is really obvious. But again, it's it's getting brighter and it's now, aside from the Moon and uh, Jupiter, 
Uh, I've seen a set, it's now the second brightest object in the sky, and it's very clearly uh, bright orange. It's also very easy to find because it's been climbing back up the horns of the bull. Uh, it's currently forming a triangle with um, uh, Beta and Zeta Tauri. Uh, Beta is also called El Math. And it's heading back up towards the high 80s and Red Aldebaran. So uh, if you're looking out to the uh, east and northeast, be able to see the Pleiades, the upside down V shape of, of the high 80s with Aldebaran in it as its eye, and below that bright red Mars. So very easy to see. And of course, above, above the pair of Aldebaran and Mars, is another bright red star, Betelgeuse, and the source planet of Orion. So it's be very attractive observing. Now, Mars is actually closest to the Earth on the 1st of December, but because of the uh, geometries of the Earth-Mars uh, lineup, it's actually uh, bigger and brighter uh, on the 8th. And at this time, Mars will be about four degrees from the full moon. So even if you can't find the find it by looking for the high 80s and um, and the source of, of Orion, you'll be able to see it, see it very obviously uh, just above the moon. So unlike Jupiter and, and Saturn, Mars's increase and decrease in size uh, around the time of opposition is quite substantial. So at opposition, it's uh, about 17.6 arc, arc seconds in diameter. And at this time, even modest uh, amateur instruments to be able to see surface marking. Not a great detail, though. Again, provided we don't have giant dust storms like we had in the previous opposition, where all you could see was orange dust. But I've seen some of the images been coming out recently, and I've been getting some nice detail around Sirius Major. And so even in small telescopes, you should be able to see some degree of uh, detail. And by the end of the month, its Mars has shrunk down to 15 arc seconds, making it much harder to resolve in our modest amateur telescopes. Sadly, this is the best opposition until 2033. But do make the effort, because this will be a really good time to see Mars through the telescope. Unfortunately, oppositions uh, during, uh, during the latter part of the year is not good in Australia, because the ecliptic is quite angled uh, northwards. So um, at its highest, Mars is only about 30 degrees above the horizon. Now that's relatively high, but you still the atmosphere isn't quite as stable, especially in summer. The atmosphere tends to be very unstable, so it's very hard through a telescope to get uh, decent seeing, as opposed to during winter when the air, when the planets are much higher and the air is quite still. Yep. Be that as it may, it's still a good time to get out Dust off your telescope if you have one, or pester your friends with a telescope and have a look at the opposition of Mars. And for people in southeast Australia, getting out there at this time of year also means, given that we've had such wet winter and spring, mosquitoes are everywhere at the moment. It's diabolical, Ian. Uh, I would also advise that if you're going out, wear good mosquito-proof clothing and wear lots of uh, mosquito repellents because uh, Ross River virus and quite a few other viruses are rampant at the moment. So it's, it's, they're not just annoying, they can uh, potentially carry serious disease. So it's a really good idea to make sure you, you're uh, fully protected. 
Exactly. There's a encephalitis bug out there as well, but unfortunately... Japanese encephalitis, yes. Unless you're a abattoir worker, you need to pay $300 for the um, vaccination. That's not that's not good. Okay. Well, if you if you're up, uh, if you've pestered your friends to, to look at Mars through the telescope, you might as well use that time to swing your telescope over to Jupiter. Jupiter's looking really good at the moment. It's arising before the sky's fully dark, so when the sky becomes fully dark, you'll be able to see Jupiter quite nicely. It's now uh, in the northwest and it'll be sinking during the rest during the month, but it's still very good. Uh, you'll have to catch it in the early evening. Uh, maybe if you're doing a telescope uh, session, you can start off with Jupiter while it's uh, still reasonably high and swing over to Mars as it gets higher. Jupiter's now beginning to set after midnight, but not too long after midnight. Now, the second, uh, Jupiter's below the waxing moon and looks rather nice. And then on the 29th, Jupiter's just one degree from the crescent moon. So this will look particularly nice. And it fits into the field of view of mid-range uh, binoculars and wide-field telescope eyepieces. So it's, again, worth catching in both binoculars and telescopes. Uh, and again, around about the 29th, uh, if you're looking out around about civil twilight, you'll be able to see the two bright planets, Mercury and Venus, then Saturn, then uh, Jupiter and the Moon, and then Mars over to the northeast. So that will look very nice but in the early uh, uh, twilight. And as always, Jupiter's moons, it's always excellent viewing, whether you're looking at binoculars or telescopes. And that might be good for people that get out on New Year's Eve and um, get out into some dark skies on New Year's Eve to see Jupiter. Yes, it would be very good. Uh, very good. Uh, the whole well, the, the whole uh, New Year's Eve thing would be very nice indeed. Okay. Um, Saturn is still with us. It's uh, as a telescopic object, it's getting harder. It's uh, uh, now low in the uh, northwest sky, to, uh, heading towards the western sky. So it's best in the first half of the month, but it's still relatively high. Again, if you want to, if you start observing an astronomical twilight, one and a half hours after sunset, you could start Saturn, move to Jupiter, then move to Mars to get the best experience. And Saturn starts off the month forming a line with Delta and Gamma Capricornii, and not too far from Iota Capricornii. But as the month wears on, it moves away from Iota Capricornii and forms a triangle with Delta and Gamma Capricornii, uh, which it did uh, earlier in the year. And on the 26th, the crescent moon is close to Saturn, so that will look very nice. So from the 21st on, from the 24th on, uh, there'll be some nice moon-planet conjunctions. Now, this year, of course, we've got the Geminid meteor shower. It's usually quite a good meteor shower, but unfortunately this year the moon is sitting almost on top of the radiant of the shower at the nominal peak time. So you don't get to see very many meteors at the suggested peak. You'll have to wait around until around about the December the 15th to see a decent rate. Uh, around about the normal time, you've got around about between uh, three to four meteors per hour, which isn't really worth fighting mosquitoes for. But on the December the 15th, if you're up in Darwin, you can expect to see something like uh, 30 meteors an hour. That's about uh, 
a meteor every two minutes, which is not a bad rate. 25 meteors per hour in, uh, in Brisbane and Perth. Sydney, Adelaide, Lane and Canberra can, can expect about, about 18 meteors per hour on December the 15th. Uh, Melbourne, about 16, and Hobart, about 12. So on December the 15th, it's probably, uh, if you're getting up uh, around about uh, one o'clock or so, you can expect to see uh, a, a moderate number of meteors. And when the when the uh, waning moon rises, the rates will drop off very rapidly. And of course, with the stars, you've got our friends uh, Scorpius and Sagittarius. Scorpius is basically gone. Sagittarius is too low for the horizon to worry about. But Orion, the Hunter, and Taurus, the Bull, and the Pleiades and Hyades clusters are now readily visible. Uh, and the clusters of Carina are rising. So that'll be very happy hunting ground. So in the latter part of the month, uh, where the uh, when the moon is dark, uh, get your binoculars out or your telescope, and this you do have to wait quite quite late for the sky to actually get dark, especially in some of the southern states. Orion and the uh, clusters around the uh, Orion's Belt and the nebulas will look really fantastic. Uh, similarly, there's uh, Carina and its uh, uh, clusters are beginning to rise. And this is a fabulous time for, for looking at the small Magellanic Cloud and the cluster 47 Ducana. Fantastic, Ian. Yeah. So lots of happy hunting for December. Excellent. And do you have a tangent for us? Indeed, I do. Only a short while ago, we were watching the SLS launch after Primus One of the Moon, and we were all impressed by the sound and thunder there. Uh, and if, uh, like um, uh, you and I, you watched the Artemis' live broadcast of flipping around the moon, and we will have transited from uh, from that to look at peering through our telescopes at Mars and being in opposition. Now. And uh, as I said before, Mark, that, this is a good, good opposition. And uh, so long as we don't see a flare spurting out from Mars, bright green, drawing a green wisp behind it, we'll have a very good time. But what links the SLS launch and the opposition at Mars? Um... Glass, you say? Yes, glass. Now, rather than cylinders landing on a horse of common, bits of rock have been slamming into Mars for eons, and it's still happening now. Uh, our Earth-bound telescopes can't see them, but the combination of the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the InSight lander, which is still clock, uh, clocking on, have been steadily uh, clocking up impacts, uh, finding around about four to five impacts on Mars per year. Now, this may not sound too exciting, but on the 24th of December last year, InSight recorded a record break in Mars quake magnitude 4. Now, this is kind of wimpy uh, compared to some ones on Earth. Most people can get out of bed from magnitude four earthquake, but it's the uh, largest Mars quakes they've ever measured, and it's thought that this was due to a roughly twelve to two thirty-seven meter object blasting into Mars. As a result, it excavated a crater that was twenty-one meters deep. Nice, but it also blasted out debris, including chunks of ice. And this is a, the MRO imagery shows these chunks uh, of ice scattered everywhere. So it's uh, obviously, ice is still buried deep under Mars, and this has excavated uh, these chunks of ice, some of the uh, bits falling up to 40 kilometres away. 
And now again, you're saying, okay, that's really nice. Uh, what's this got to do with glass? So impacts like this can form glass, both in the in the crater and in the debris. Now, uh, blobs of all material uh, blasting through the atmosphere could form glass. And the impact itself, the heat and pressure of the impact in the glass within the crater. Now, scattered across Australia, and it's mostly Australia, there's other places, but uh, Australia has some of the biggest uh, fields, are tectites. Uh, these are blobs of glass from a, a not so ancient meteorite impact. Now, the, uh, most of the Australites are between uh, 600,000 to 750,000 years old. So they, well, they, they predate large complex uh, life on Earth, but well after the origin of life on Earth. And they're thought to be due to an impact in Southeast Asia. Originally, they were thought to come from the moon, but now we're pretty sure most of the tectites actually come from impacts on Earth. And they're quite interesting. Uh, you get uh, 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 what look like dumbbell blobs and uh, what look like buttons. And each of these forms of glass represent different trajectories. So the dumbbell forms blobs of uh, molten glass that have, haven't gone very high and are still cooling as they're falling towards Earth and spinning out to form the dumbbell or sometimes teardrop shapes. Uh, blobs of glass that have lasted higher or more spherical shapes. And some of the buttons, what they think the button shape is, they've gone high enough to start cooling down and then uh, forming almost uh, spherical shapes. And then as they re-enter, the heat of re-enter uh, uh, forms them to melt on the outer edge, form these uh, button-like flanges as they come back down again. And uh, there's a, a large number of these fields are screw, strewn over uh, chunks of southeastern Australia, uh, through the wheat fields of uh, Western Australia, and through some uh, through uh, bits of uh, Victoria as well. Cool. So, uh, no sinister cylinders have reached us from Mars, but bits of Mars that have been blasted out by uh, meteor impacts. In fact, not too much uh, bigger than the ones that blasted out the chunks of ice uh, that the MRO saw. Uh, have reached our planet. And some of these meteors are full of impact glass, generated by the impact melting the rock that was subsequently blasted to Earth. And these glasses are quite pretty, but they're also very informative because they trap some of the ancient uh, gases of Mars. And some of these are relatively uh, new, only being blasted out uh, something like 10 million years ago. Ooh. Yeah. So... Again, you're saying, okay, that, that's really nice. We've got these partial rocks blasted into space, landing on Earth full of glass. What's that got to do with the SLS? Well, if a Martian had been sitting on the uh, on Mars with the uh, largest uh, telescopes we have on, uh, on Earth, uh, on Mars, they wouldn't be able to see the SLS, uh, even though it's as mighty uh, uh powerful rocket and if you watch the the broadcast of its launch incredibly awesome going back to the days of the uh, of the Saturn five launches uh that incredibly powerful but though you wouldn't be able to see them from mars nonetheless there's 
legacies left behind, and this is called booster glass. The impact at heat of the uh, of the uh, booster rockets launching uh, the SLS and Saturn V and other uh, rockets into space can fuse the sand and soil near the launch site into a glass, the so-called booster glass. So the launch of the SLS uh, will have generated some booster glass, uh, which uh, links us into the glasses uh, in the meteorites that have fallen to Earth from Mars. Now, HG Wells never told us exactly how the Martians launched their, uh, their red projectiles to Earth, but uh, if some future Victorian archaeologist was to scour the sands of dead Mars, I'm sure he'd find the equivalent of uh, booster glass burnt into the red sands of Mars. Fantastic, Ian. And we're going to have a really cool, or hopefully warm, December with lots to see in the sky and lots of good things to see around the time we're doing holidays and festivities. Well, thank you very much, Ian, Astroblog Musgrave. And remember, everyone, you can always find Ian's blog. So just look for Astroblog and you'll find it. Also, Southern Skywatch. Thank you very much, Ian. Have a fantastic uh, holiday period and new year. Okay. You too, mate. And I hope you get your telescope gets a bit of, uh, a, bit of a workout this year. Oh. So much cloudy weather, Ian. I'm really looking forward to getting out there and having a really good look. Okay. Look, all the best, mate. All the best for everyone there. And I hope your daughter does it very well in her interview. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing some decent skies and uh, getting the telescope out. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. All the best to your family. And remember... Astrophys is free, ad-free, and unsponsored. And in two weeks, we have a wonderful interview for you when we'll be speaking again with an amazing researcher and astrophysicist, Dr. Manisha Kaleb. We first had her on the show five years ago, in 2017, just before she submitted her thesis for her PhD. Since then, she's done a postdoc at Jodrell Bank, and now... Manisha is back in Australia and is using the world's most powerful instruments to unlock the secrets of some of the most powerful and puzzling objects in our known universe. Yes, it's another FRB episode. You'll love Manisha and her work. Tune in in two weeks and till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.